Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Hey, Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode here on Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I'm joined by my ghoul friend, Jessica. Hey! And today, we are here to chat about a little bit heavier of a true crime topic mm-hmm. that uh, I don't I don't know. I have a lot of feelings about, so... Me too. Depending on how I feel after the edit, you may already know the title or you may already know the topic. I may not go with a witty title, but today we are going to be discussing all that is Jim Jones and Jonestown. Yes. If this is, yeah, my research, I thought it was going to be like, oh, he's a crazy person and he formed this cult. And then like the more I learned about him, I was like, oh my God. Okay. There's so much to unpack with this. Yes. With the whole thing. Good God. But before we dive in, of course, um, we're going to go ahead with our business and drinks. And then we'll, you know, promos, all that great stuff and get right into it. So if you are new here, hello and welcome. We're happy to have you. And for our regular spoosters, welcome back. So happy to have you part of the fam. Wingapo. <laughs> I was waiting. I was waiting. And if you didn't know, there's a Wingapo merch in the merch store now. <laughs> it's pretty. But if you're new here and you have no idea what's going on, you can check us out on all the socials. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of that great stuff. There is a link tree in the show notes for you. So you can find us everywhere you would like to find us. And we are on Patreon as well. If you would like to be part of the Spookster Club and support the show, you can head there as well. When we reach 50 members, Jessica has a new segment that's going to be coming to the Patreon members, our two and up members, twice a month. I'm excited about it. Like Me too. I mean, I have been told that I can give a movie review like nobody else in the most sarcastic of sense <laughs> because... It is both frightening and chaotic, but it's quite entertaining. It's going to be amazing. But if you want to read more about that, we have a public post on Patreon. You can go check out all of that great stuff. We do want to give a shout out to one of our featured partnered companies today. We did a professional affiliate partnership affiliate with Studio. If you don't know who they are, they have an amazing selection of a bunch of different headphones and earbuds and all kinds of great stuff for you guys. Jessica and I actually are trying out the, or have been trying out by this point, mm-hmm. the Tolve earbuds, which are wireless. They're great. They're white and rose gold, and they have other colors. If so, if that's not your thing, you know. Mm-hmm. But anyways, we just want to tell you a little bit about them. They're pretty cool. They're pretty cool. And they also gave us a 15% off coupon code for you guys, which is all in the show notes for you. Or that code is Spooked Girls. And about mid-roll-ish, you'll hear kind of more details on the specs and all of that great stuff. So definitely check it out and head to the link and check out the earbuds. 
I know I've been using them when we record and also when working out, which for me is lifting and biking. And they've stayed in my ears and they've worked great. I love them. I love that they also come. I mean, like most earbuds now come with the optional sizes, but Mm -hmm. these are really great sizes because I have like a weirdly small yet large ear. Mm -hmm. I don't get it. Um, (laughs) So like the normal ones in there, I'm like, oh, it doesn't quite fit or it pops out. And these I don't have so much a problem with. I really like the clarity. Uh, I use them for work, actually, because my company uses Vonage as our phone system. So it's on my cell phone. Mm -hmm. And I will tell you, I have had some compliments about how crystal clear the conversation is. Nice. Very, very nice. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Once again, just check out the show notes for that stuff or just tune into that mid-roll ad that'll be coming after we talk a little bit about Jim Jones a bit. But Jessica, what is the drink? Well, since we're going to be talking about Jonestown, which is in Guyana, which is in the tropics of South America, Mm -hmm. I found this little cult classic cocktail called the Jungle Bird. Oh, okay. It has dark rum. I believe it's Campari is how it's said. Mm -hmm. Lime juice, golden sugar syrup. I just use simple syrup because, you know, I can't brown sugar without burning it. And pineapple juice, and you garnish it with a cherry. You shake everything with plenty of crushed ice and then pour unstrained into an old-fashioned glass or if you have a tiki mug, it says. I do not have a tiki mug. Wait, don't you have one from Disney? It's not a tiki mug. It's a piranha Um, mug. Okay. Yeah. Well, it could work, technically. Technically. Missed opportunity. (laughs) I know. I think when I go back, when my husband and I go to Disney for our anniversary, I want to go to Trader Sam's and get tiki mugs. There you go. Because I was, remember how mad I was that that was the only, it was either that one or the giant fort. Yeah. And I was not about to drink the giant fort. <laughs> I was exhausted and tired. And I love every one of the, every single girl who went on my bachelorette party if, with me. But if there is one thing I could say is y'all like to fucking walk too much. <laughs> They made me walk all the way in like the wrong shoes all the way down to like from our hotel all the way to the Disneyland hotel, which was like two miles. They're like, it's just a mile. And I was like walking. I'm like, <laughs> I don't believe this. And I pulled it up. It was like two miles. It's like, bull. Oh, we survived. That means it's four miles. We survived. We survived. <laughs> I did. But I got a piranha mug. I'll take a picture of it and post it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fun one. I like it. I like it. I think I liked the drink that came in it. No, I didn't like the drink that came in it. So I ordered a new drink, but they let me keep the mug. Yeah, I remember that. They packed it up for you. Mm-hmm. But um, I got my Robert Mondavi Merlot handy tonight because nice. fuck everything Jim Jones. That's all I have to say so far. Oh, my God. Jim Jones. You know, you know. But we are going to take our quick promo break and our quick ad from our other partner that we have. So check it out and we'll be right back. Feeling better for me is top priority mentally, physically and emotionally. They all work together. Talking about the things that we all may experience, but just don't quite know how to say really opens up some new dialogue and perspective. That's the goal here. Sometimes you got to see yourself a little bit better and leave yourself alone because there are other people who see you for exactly who you are. 
and that's all good. We stay elevated here. But even Dr. Jekyll had a dark side. I mean, who doesn't love a good story to make the hairs on their arms stand up? I started to walk a little faster, just figuring if it was probably someone trying to scare me. It was like a hazing, but this didn't feel right. Night Owl is the hangout for those horror fans looking for a little bump in the night. Monday Motivation, Friday Frights. We like balance here, and the Bird Brain Podcast has it all. Take flight. Sleep tight. Do you find yourself quoting horror movies to friends or starting conversations with strangers about haunted mirrors? You do? Then look no further than the Nightgeist podcast. Grab a beverage and join us weekly as we discuss all things paranormal, strange, and murdery together. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are heard. Also, you may check out our website, nightgeistpod.com, and find us on all social media apps. Just search for Nightgeist Podcast. We've been waiting for you. Do you have a spooky business and need a logo or someone to help you with branding? Then you need to check out Mackenzie Lemoyne Designs, home for the soft and spooky. From logos to custom commissions to enamel pins, Mackenzie will take any spooky idea you have and turn it into a reality. Head over to the show notes and check out her Etsy shop. She's also given an exclusive code just for you guys. At checkout, use the code SPOOKSTER for a 10% off your order. Again, check out Mackenzie Lemoyne Designs for all your spoopy needs. Welcome back, guys. We hope you enjoyed those. I'm going to hand it off to Jessica. She's going to kind of give us the the starting ways of this journey of Jim Jones. I don't know what else to how else to dictate this right now besides that. So that's what we're going to go with. And then I am going to pick it up once I hand it over. Yes. <laughs> once Jessica's done. Once Jessica's done. <laughs> So we're going to be talking about Jim Jones and the Jonestown debacle, crazy shenanigans that happened. So first, we're going to talk about Jim. Good old, not, well, not so good old, just Jim. Jim was born James Warren Jones on May 13th, 1931. He's best known for being an American civil rights preacher, faith leader, and cult leader. I had kind of approached this a little differently. I I was going to come at it super clinical and be like, Jim Jones, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, this was a harder one for me. So Jim grew up really kind of in the midst of the Great Depression. So Jim grew up in Indiana and he grew up really poor. In fact, in 1934, when he was just a little taut, his family moved into the house he grew up in was basically a shack with no plumbing. Mm. So James or Jim, as he liked to be called, wanted more. And it didn't help that Jim was known as the weird kid. Really, he really loved to read. And he especially was drawn to certain individuals like Stalin and Marx and Gandhi and Hitler. And if you look at that, you're like, Gandhi's great, but Hitler, not so much. Mm -mm. He was said to have studied their strengths and weaknesses. And he did this early on, like in school. He also developed an intense interest in religion. In fact, he's quoted in saying that he went and joined the Pentecostal church because it was the church of the outsiders in that area. So Jim knew he was an outsider and decided, hey, I'm going to embrace this. He also had another little weird tendency that I don't think normal little kids do, which is he held funerals for small animals. Okay. There's only one reporting that he stabbed a cat, but I'm concerned where he got other animals he had the funerals for. So Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Jim Jones's father, um, whose also name was James, was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Oh. So Jim really wanted people to understand that he differed from his father on the race issue. In fact, James has said that he didn't speak to his father for many, many years because his father wouldn't allow his African-American friend into their house. This, I think, was a pivotal moment in Jones's life because I think Jones, he's totally a sociopath. He's manipulative. He is the center of the world, in his opinion. And so whatever he thinks is gospel. So he didn't understand why we were segregated. Which I'm going to say this and people are going to at me, but a lot of what Jim Jones said, like, I can see like the whole accepting people for who they are, looking past race, gender, sexuality, all that stuff. He just kind of rolled it up in a bunch of crazy. Mm -hmm. In 1948, he graduated early from high school and he actually graduated with honors. So he graduated early. Hmm. In 1949, he married Marceline Baldwin. They were married the rest of their lives. In 1951, he decided he was going to go to college and he graduated 10 years later. He also started going to the Communist Party uh, USA meetings, which I don't know if you know what was going on during the 50s and 60s, but there was this thing about communism and how people like were being harassed by the government. But he was actually like, he was kind of a communist. Yeah. Yeah. He felt very flustered by the harassment he received during the McCarthy trials. So this is the weird thing. People in his area knew he was kind of a communist or socialist. But there was this guy in the Methodist church who was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to help you. So Jones kind of basically moved his way up through the Methodist church and then split off Because in 1956, he became ordained with the Independent Assemblies of God, which is creepy because my parents raised me in the Assemblies of God, which I'm hoping those are two separate things, but okay. (laughs) And then in 1964, he became ordained in the Disciples of Christ, which is technically the church's name was the People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ. Mm. So one of the things that I noticed with Jones is that Basically, he kind of figured out the formula for a cult really quickly. Oh, yeah. Which is that if you give someone love and acceptance, but the thing they have to give you in return is their everything, that is complete and total. Like, that's how you get a cult. That's how you get a following. In 1953, he made sure that the churches that he was in were fully integrated. And we're talking racially. In fact, he would make people sit like black, white, black, white, black, white. So he could look out and see the integration. His whole thing was he really wanted to point out to people that segregation was bad. In 1960s, the Indianapolis mayor, Charles Boswell, um, appointed Jones director of the local human rights commission. And essentially, he was doing really great things. And he integrated churches, restaurants, the telephone company, police departments, theaters, amusement parks, other factions of the local government. So he was at this point in time doing really good things. He and his wife were the first white couple to adopt a black child in Indiana. Oh, wow. Right. Like, And gave him the moniker of James Jones Jr. So like his adoptive son carries the junior mm-hmm. in it. And he said that integration is more of a personal thing with me or it's 
a question of my son's future. And they ended up adopting three Korean Americans, um, Liz, Suzanne, and Stephanie, and then another African American child by the name of Tim. But basically, Tim's mom was just like, here, here's my kid, sign it over, which is weird. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I don't think I would go through all that childbirth and to just be like, Here's my kid for your cause. <laughs> Basically, the temple, which is the church she worked at, the people's temple, was preached that those who remained drugged by the opiate of religion had brought the Enlightenment socialism. So basically, this is kind of where Jones took a weird turn in his life. Essentially, Jones became extremely charismatic and people were flocking in. At one point in time, they were trying to say that they had about 20,000 members, and this is at the height of this movement. But essentially, he was he was just taking over. But there was the other side to it. He, at this time, I believe, started using drugs. And kind of the unrational side of Jim Jones came out. He became kind of violent at times in the fact that he went from like, well, I don't know how to say this. It would be like, okay, you got in trouble, so you're going to copy lines down kind of punishment to like public beatings. Jim is basically like he's running his, his kind of group he's got going on and people are starting to be like, what's happening here? They're doing like faith healing stuff. People are getting a little weirded out. So Jim kind of goes, I got to get out of here, right? This isn't going to be good if I stay in Indiana. In January of 1962, he actually takes his first trip to Brazil, which is Guyana is like right there by Brazil. And this is where he finds Guyana and he realizes that it's an English speaking country because it is a British colony. He's like, this is great. I should do this. He's there for almost like two years, essentially. He leaves in January of 1962 and comes back in in December of 1963. And he comes back to Indiana and then he spends the next few years like talking about wanting to move, but then takes a weird turn and ends up moving to California. (laughs) And he moved into a part of California, which is Redwood Valley, which I know people from Redwood Valley. Redwood Valley, California. It's up by Ukiah. And this is where there's like beautiful grapes. And there's, you know, it's a very lovely area. It's near the ocean. And the reason he moved there is Esquire magazine said it is one of the places to be if there was ever a nuclear holocaust. Okay. Because you have to realize this is during the height of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. People are like, oh, okay, I don't want to die. And that's one of the things he was starting to preach really heavily was that Americans were going to start. They were going to segregate into concentration camps and they were going to do all these like horrible things. And if that wasn't what was going to bring down society, it was going to be nuclear holocaust. So he moved his family there. He picked 150 people to move to California with them. And they lived there and they had their like, I say it's like the first beginnings of Jonestown. It's like their Mm -hmm. little tiny community commune. But then you have to look forward. In 1967, it was the summer of love. Yeah. Right? People were flocking to San Francisco. I mean, I think one of the most popular songs that summer was, if you're going to San Francisco, wear a flower in your hair. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, like, it was all about love and, like, acceptance. And if you really think about, like, he first kind of preaches, it's all about love and acceptance. It doesn't matter what race you are. It doesn't matter. Basically, he was a preacher that despised the isms, racism, genderism, sexism. Like, he really pushed people to get rid of them. 
And I can understand if you were a young person or a person of color who was being like abused. And here is this, you know, white bread of a man is the only thing. Because he looks mid like when you first see pictures of him, he looks like a Midwestern preacher. And you're just like, oh, okay, like, I get it. Like, he's preaching love and acceptance. And if he's preaching this, anyone can preach this. Mm -hmm. Right. And people started joining the church, the people's temple by like the hundreds. And so they started like splintering off into different areas all the way down to like San Fernando, like the San Fernando Valley. Wow. Right. It was crazy. But they focused a lot because you have to think about at the time, it's like the Vietnam War is kind of coming to a head. Mm -hmm. And then you have the race riots and you have all of these things that are happening. And basically, in 1971, that's when they really started having services in San Francisco. But also, he got really integrated into San Francisco's politics. So people were coming to talk to him, governors, mayors, political candidates, even Rosalind Carter reached out and talked to him about what was happening in the culture around like like social activism in regards to human rights and what was happening. And so he was kind of the forward thinking person. But this is also where he gets like super into drugs and his preaching goes from like love and acceptance to I'm the father. You can call me father. I can be your God. I can be whatever you need. He start, it really starts becoming like into him. His messages are riddled with profanity. It's about hating the outside world. And people are like people who are being persecuted are like, hell yeah, like this guy's got it. But like. The truth is, is that he was a little sketch and people were seeing like he would do faith healings, right? He would plant people in his audience like he had his secretary, one of the secretaries of the church, pretend to be in a wheelchair with like a hip and a spine problem. And he reaches out and he calls from her. And I grew up in a very religious home. And so I understand that like there are people they believe in faith healings, but this was all kinds of faked, right? Like she could totally walk and he called her and she gets up and I watched the video there. We um, you can check on the resource page. You'll see like one of the documentaries I watched, like she's in the wheelchair and she's like having to be picked up by like three people. And then all of a sudden she walks and then she starts running around praising her art, like raising her hands and praising the Lord. And it's like people were like, oh, my gosh. And then it was like all of James uh all of Jim Jones's sons survived they were saying like both his sons were saying we didn't have to fake them after a while because people were just faking them for us because they didn't want to be like if oh my hands are numb like oh don't your hands feel healed now and they're like of course they feel healed and it's that whole like sometimes it's that whole like if i believe hard enough it's going to happen but also i could just believe and not know <laughs> No. <laughs> <laughs> no. So then our wonderful, wonderful friend Jim decides San Francisco isn't enough because I think at this point in time, he's like let his crazy side out long enough. People are like, OK, so what does he do? He's like, oh, yeah, that place, Guyana. Let's go back there and let's build this place that we're going to call the People's Temple Agricultural Project. So he essentially moves a bunch of people down to South America. It's very strategic how he does it. He sends some people down ahead of time. They start building and then he comes down there and he he's nothing but a excellent salesman. So we know that he draws people in because he exploits 
their faith in him. In fact, he said, during this time, he said, I have more power than anyone else I know, and my power is dependent on your faith. So he convinced almost like over a thousand people to pick up their life and move to South America. The other thing that he really did is he knew that one of the things he started preaching was uh, like really during this time is like the free love thing. And uh, Jim Jones may or may not have fathered a few children with some other people other than his wife. And he would make them do weird things like when they would join the church, like he would make married couples get a divorce to get remarried or he'd have them change their name. So as people are moving there, Jim is like, okay, I need unfeathered loyalty. Like, nobody can question me. So he would make people sign over the weirdest shit, like their kids, their property, their power of attorney, meaning that Jim could say whatever. He'd also make people sign blank documents, just with a signature at the bottom, which I don't know about you, but could be used for anything and was, because a lot of times people, when they would try to, like, leave him, he would suddenly produce a document that would say things like, I, so-and-so, am admitting to molesting my children. And they're like, what? And essentially, people did leave, and they came back to the United States, and then they tried to talk to their family back in Jonestown, and they weren't allowed to. So they formed what is called the Concerned Relatives Group. And what they did is they started going out and contacting as many people as possible. They were telling stories of like sexual abuse that Jones was doing, especially because Jones was one of those people who felt like if he thought you were pretty, you should just sleep with him. Whether you were a man or a woman, I mean, no judgment, but a little judgment, Jim. You are a married man. You have a wife who is apparently extremely loyal to you. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, is that like if you left him, you were a traitor. And traitors should be killed. Also, he was obsessed with an idea of revolutionary suicide. In fact, at one point in 1973, his inner circle were in a meeting and he passed out cups of wine. After they drank the wine, he told them all they were poisoned and wanted to see their reaction. They all knew that he was just playing games with them. So they were like, oh, Jim, we're willing to die for the cause. And then he's like, oh, just kidding. You're not poisoned. He also said that people should jump off the San Francisco Gate Bridge and that they should basically buy out an entire plane and put members of this church on there and then shoot the pilot because that would be revolutionary suicide. So obviously people are like, um, he's crazy. And it caught some attention. So before I hand it off to Tara, we're going to take a quick moment to hear from our partners and hear more about those amazing earbuds that we talked about earlier. And then Tara is going to take it away. So we'll be back in just a minute. With its wireless design, minimalistic charging case, and microphones on both sides, the tall earbuds from Studio is the perfect match for any adventure. The sophisticated earbuds hold seven hours of battery life, while the portable case offers four additional charges for six days of standby life. Tolf introduces a new graphene driver for intense, clear sound quality. It also is the latest Bluetooth 5.0 technology capability with iOS and Android and is up to 15 meters of range. 
Studio wants to provide a product that matches the quality of even the highest rated headphones on the market for a fraction of the cost. And as an added bonus, they provide free worldwide shipping. So you international speaksters can enjoy these earbuds too. So head to studio.com or the link in the show notes and use our code SPOOKEDGIRLS at checkout for 15% off any purchase. Okay, we really hope that you enjoyed that amazing little tidbit from our partner studio. And I'm going to hand it over to Tara now because she's going to tell you about whose attention all this crazy shenanigans attracted. I've just got all the feelings now. Good God. Okay, so yeah, like Jessica said, the People's Temple and Jim Jones started to seek a lot of media attention with all these rumors of the physical and sexual abuse, supposed mind control, forced druggings, and basically neglect of human rights altogether. So this raised, obviously, a lot of concern for many, many people, people who were related to members in this cult. I'm not even going to call it a church because it's a fucking cult. And one of these intertwined people strangely enough, it's kind of like that six degrees of Kevin Bacon situations, was Congressman Leo Ryan. He was actually friends with a former member's father, Bob Houston, who sadly, he was actually found dead and mutilated near train tracks on October 5th of 1976, which was just three days after he spoke with his ex-wife about leaving People's Temple. And then another event that would grab Congressman Ryan's attention was there was a custody battle between Jim and Timothy Stone, I believe is how you say it. He was the leader of the Concerned Relatives group. So at this point, Congressman Ryan decided enough was enough. He was going to go to Jonestown and see exactly what was going on. On November 14th of 1978, Leo Ryan arrived to Georgetown, Guyana, which is about 150 miles from Jonestown with his aide, who is Jackie Spire, members of the media, including Tim Ritterman of the San Francisco Examiner, Don Harris from NBC, and 14 members of the Concerned Relatives group. And some of those people were actually ex-members themselves. Of course, Jim Jones saw this group as enemy number one. So once he caught wind that this group was on their way, he wanted the members to think the same thing. So instantly he went into the mode of these people are trying to ruin him and they're trying to ruin the people's temple. So that basically they're going to tell lies and they're going to ruin everything and they're going to just do everything they can to ruin this peace and harmony that we have here. One of the things that Jim would do and that he did around this time was a drill called White Night, which meant extreme emergency. So everyone had to wake up in the middle of the night and then go hear Jim go off on his gym tangents. Everyone was obviously confused as hell. They were tired. They were overworked. And according to ex-members, they were basically living off rice at this point. So they had really no clue what was going on. Their mind was not clear they couldn't think straight. So before the group's arrival, he also made sure to coach all of these members on how to respond when they were being asked on what they thought of Jonestown. And that was just in terms of like, did they like it? What did they hear others saying about it? And things like that. Because of course, Jim couldn't let anybody tell any of these outsiders what was really going on. He knew if they found out the truth, he would be done. And then as far, he even went as far as to create a Another fake document, kind of similar to what Jessica talked about, was a petition to not have them come into Jonestown at all, which if you know this case at all, you know that 
does nothing. There's a documentary that we both ended up watching called The Jonestown Massacre Paradise Lost. Came out back in 2007, but it is amazing. If you are interested in learning more about this case at all, absolutely watch it. Absolutely watch it because not only do you learn about this story, you also get to hear personal experiences from survivors as well. It just gives a whole new light that I can't even really put into words, but it's a view that if you're learning, wanting to learn more about it, you should absolutely take the time to watch. Oh, for sure. And especially because like one of his sons and it's, I believe, one of his biological sons. Yes. um, His biological son, Stephen, is in it. And we'll discuss him a little more a little later. And then there's also Vernon Gosney, which was a he was a member and he has a pretty big part in this story as well. And then a reporter I mentioned earlier, Tim Ritterman, he's also in it. So obviously they all survived. There's also a close family member who's in this as well in this documentary who doesn't go to Jonestown. He stays in Georgetown, but he's a big part in the retelling as far as another aspect goes, which, like I said, I'll get to. But yeah, it's just a fantastic documentary. They really do a great job. And it was it was really good. It's on YouTube and it's on the, the sources page for you guys. Anyways, upon arrival to Georgetown, Congressman Ryan visits the home base for People's Temple there. They had a house um, in one of the suburbs there in Georgetown. So he meets this crazy bitch named Sharon Amos, who had a different name than she originally did. Her name used to be Linda, but she changed her name because Jim knew a woman who was named Linda and didn't like her. So she couldn't have that name. I just don't even know. Like if someone was like, (laughs) I have one of the most basic names in America. Yeah. But if someone was like, you have to change your name because I don't like a Jessica, I'd be like, who the hell are you? Mm-hmm. I'm a grown ass woman. Jim Jones. Yeah. But uh, Sharon, as she'll be referred to the rest of the time of this episode, she was actually a very high ranking and important person with a lot of power. She was a very diehard Jim Jones people's temple person. I just I liked in the reenactment because the guy who plays Congress Ryan, he just walks in. He's like, hi, I'm the bad guy. I just kind of laughed. Oh, my God. I loved it. I did, too. Like she was a gift to get out. And he was like, I'm just talking to this guy. Like, who are you? Like, right. Yeah. I was like, I want to be Congressman Ryan's friend. Right. And like, surprisingly, that actor actually looks very similar to the real one, the real congressman. There was kind of some spot on like people, except for the guy who played Stephen Jones. Like, yeah, Stephen Jones is a lot skinnier than the actor that they had him portrayed by. Yeah. And I even saw a picture of him when he was like young like that because he was 19 when this happened. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you guys couldn't have gotten a scrawny kid and just put a wig and a mustache on him. Right. Okay. (laughs) But back to the the real story. So Congressman Ryan, he speaks with Sharon and he tries to talk about getting to speak with Jim himself over the house radio that they had because that's how they communicated with Jonestown. She was like, no, that's not going to happen because it wasn't scheduled. It wasn't planned. So nope. Bye. Get out of here. Peace. Along with that, another thing to note, the basketball team for Jonestown, which included Steven, he was on the team. They were there in Georgetown because of a tournament. So during all of this, they're there. And Sharon's children were also at this house. Uh, She had three kids. She had Martin, who was eight, Krista, who was 10, and Leanne, who was 21, about to be 22. Now, the family member who I brought up earlier, 
This would be Sharon's ex-husband, Sherwin Harris. That's Leanne, only Leanne's father. The other two kids are from somebody else. He's in this documentary as well. Oh, my God. He traveled along because basically he wanted to make sure Leanne was OK. He wanted to check on his daughter. They had a really kind of estranged, strained relationship. And he said there was always something between them, something strange. I would just make the assumption it was fucking Sharon. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Like he he's an ex member. Yeah. So he's like enemy numero uno. Exactly. Basically, that first visit at the home base was rather fruitless. So they kind of just left from the ho- uh, the home base and decided to go back to Georgetown. The group did have a have reservations at a local hotel, but interestingly enough, the reservations had been canceled and there was no rooms available. So it said they ended up sleeping in the lobby. Hmm. I find that interesting too, even though it's kind of mm. useless for the story, but just saying. <laughs> Shows his reach. Yeah, exactly. Then on November 17th, Congressman Ryan, his aide Jackie, who's now a congresswoman, in, uh, fun fact for you guys. Mm-hmm. The United States Embassy Deputy Chief of Mission, Richard Dwyer, and Guyanese Ministry of Information Officer, nine journalists in total, and four concerned relatives boarded a plane so they could head over to Jonestown. And that airfield they were at was in Port Katuma. So once they got to the airstrip, which is about a few miles outside of Jonestown, of course, because, of course, once you get to where you're at, you had to go more. It was pretty apparent they weren't welcome. So it would take several hours until the whole team would be able to go into Jonestown. Now, once they did, things were a bit different. Of course, there was that whole charade, in my opinion, to distract the team to what they were coming into. They had a dinner and they had entertainment. There was members singing and everyone mostly appeared happy. So the member I mentioned earlier who becomes an important part of this story is Vernon Gosney. Earlier in the timeline, when there was the rumors of them coming, Vernon had ended up talking to another member whose name was Monica, and he said he had never talked to her before, so it's kind of weird, but, you know, hey, whatever. And a couple other people how this would pretty much be their only chance to get out of Jonestown if they were going to have one, because they knew they were not leaving there alive. Oh, yeah. What's sad, though, about this is that Vernon also had a son there in Jonestown who was very young. Um, I don't know his exact age, but he was pretty small. He was maybe like three to four ish. That's my estimate is that he was like toddler, mm-hmm, like toddler. Anyways, when they're discussing this whole plan and everything, Monica asks, you know, what about your son? Like, are you going to tell him? Like, what are we going to do? And he's just like, I can't risk telling him. That sounds fucked up, but he says, and we also kind of see too, reason for that is because all of the kids, especially the ones that were born there or even there from a young, young age, they're trained to spot anything out of the ordinary or anything that'll make you go against the grid, I guess. Oh, yeah. They would do drills. Yeah. So he was basically just doing it for his own safety, which it's just sad. This whole situation, Vernon's situation is very, very sad. Oh, yeah. It's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, they would do drills. They would tell people like, we're going to pick people and they're going to try to like leave. And we want to see who's loyal because they wouldn't say who it was. Mm-hmm. And so you would have to go tell Jim that so-and-so is trying to leave. And so kids were like rewarded yeah. if they told. So, yeah. Yeah. So back to the party now, kind of jump back to that timeline. 
when Vernon meets Don Harris, who, if you remember, is actually one of the reporters, he tries to slip him a note, mainly because he originally thought this was Congressman Ryan. He hadn't seen him yet, so he got confused and thought that's who it was. Of course, Don was not expecting to have a note slip to him at all or anything like that, so he drops it. And immediately, a child yells, like exclaims, he's passing a note, he's trying to pass a note. And like, everybody's looking like, what the fuck? And Vernon has to, (laughs) I'm sure, was like shitting his pants on the inside. Oh, yeah. But he just like casually picks it up and says, oh, you must have dropped this and hands it to Don and just walks away. And then it shows another member going up to him and being like, what was that about? You know, blah, blah, blah. He's like, oh, he just dropped a note. I was just picking up and handing it to him. And then, you know, no big deal. Right. Walks away. And that note said, please help me get out of Jonestown. And it had uh, Vernon and Monica's name on it. After this little incident, the congressman gives a speech on why he's there. It's very friendly. He talks about how he's seen a couple familiar faces. I think one of the young women there went to school with maybe one of his children or something like that. Mm -hmm. And how he was happy to hear that a lot of the members were saying this is the best thing that's ever happened to them. And the crowd's cheering. Everyone's acting all happy. Everything's going great. Yeah, they said that. Tim, he said, like, I've never experienced anything like this before. And the guy next to him who was applauding this when he said that, like, I heard this is the best thing that's ever happened to you. He's like, I mean, this guy obviously totally believed in what it was. And he said, you'll never experience anything like this because this is real. Mm -hmm. So in the documentary, it's obviously going off of Vernon's account, because this is the reenactment part, the congressman comes up to him and starts talking to him about, you know, he got the note that he wants to leave and that don't worry, he'll have a seat on the plane that's leaving tomorrow. And Vernon tries to warn him that maybe they shouldn't wait all night, that they need to get out now. And I don't want to say that the congressman brushed it off because he just obviously did not understand the gravity of the situation. No. He was just like, oh, it'll be all right. You know, he brushes it off. He's like, it's going to be okay. We'll go, you know, we'll get you out of here tomorrow. It'll be fine. It's just heartbreaking because, I mean, I you don't know if things would have been different for him if he had left. I mean, it still wouldn't have been different for everybody else. So the next day, which is Saturday, November 18th, the group ends up talking to more members, finding out that they wanted to leave as well. So at this point in total, there'd be 14 people who spoke up saying they wanted to leave and they would be known as defectors in their community. Basically, this just meant that these were people going against the People's Temple and Jim Jones. And this is when stuff really starts to shift. So at this point, Jim Jones is losing control over the situation. And that's what he does not want, like at all. This is like his worst fear. So he knows letting these defectors go will mean huge, huge turmoil for him and Jonestown and everything he's done. He knows this is when shit is going to hit the fucking fan. I mean, except for at like this point, in reality, Ryan was just like, everything's great. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to go back and be like, this is fantastic. They're doing great. They're thriving. That's beautiful. They've had a community. And Jim is just off here being like, they fucking hate us. They're going to turn everyone against us. This is why you don't do drugs, kids. Yeah. Meanwhile, while this is happening, I want to sidebar back to Sherwin over in Georgetown. He's able to meet up for dinner at the home base with Leanne and catch up. She says that she's happy and she's, you know, like acting just totally 
fine, everything, you know, and they're just getting super along or getting along great, like no time's lost, like everything's going fine. And then, of course, like Sharon comes in, it's just like this awkwardness. And then they go to dinner in the dining room and all of that. But it's just so heartbreaking to watch him retell about this last day with his daughter. Oh, my God. I was like during this time I'm watching it. And there's like part of me that's like, oh, my God, is this the story where he gets her out? Like, is this great? And I know. I know. I was hoping. He says, you know, in hindsight, he should have realized it was a final goodbye when his ex-wife kissed him on the cheek because she was a psycho bitch and did not do anything nice like that. What he didn't know was she had already been on the radio with orders. Uh, If you remember, also. Jim's son, Stephen, was there with the basketball team. And at this point, he heard the radio call and he was pretty much in this radio call. If you don't know what I'm talking about, is the radio call to let them know we all need to kill ourselves. Yeah. Not even let's come home. No. And like everyone come back to Georgetown. No, it's kill yourself there. And Stephen was just like, what the fuck? Hell no. So him and some people pretty much got in their van and like got the fuck out of there and missed this whole part. Leanne tells her, you know, says her goodbyes to her dad and they're talking and making plans like everything's normal. And the next day they're going to, you know, spend time together at like 7 a.m. and go fishing and all this great stuff. There's this scene with Sharon and Leanne when she tells her before she goes says bye and she just kind of takes it in stride. She's like, "Okay, yeah, that was trippy. Yeah. Just like, all right, that's what we're going to do. Okay, gotcha. And goes and talks to her dad and says bye and whatever. And even her dad said, like, you know, she just didn't appear distraught. Nothing. They made plans for the next day. Yeah, they made plans to hang out the next day because he was going to be there. He was going to be staying longer than the whole group. He was there to see his daughter. So he was going to be staying there like a few weeks to spend time with her. So they had plans to like go fishing, go shopping, whatever. The next morning, like there's a little conversation where he's she's like, oh, you can come get me whatever time. And he's like, oh, I I wake up early. So I'm going to get you at like 7 a.m. And obviously that doesn't happen. After he leaves, they go inside and it's said that Sharon kills her two younger children first in the bathroom with a kitchen knife. And then what's reported versus what Sherwin said are kind of like conflicting a little bit. What's reported is Leanne and Sharon each kill themselves. But Sherwin says they kind of helped each other, like kind of killed each other kind of thing. It would make sense, but they're all dead in the bathroom at this point. And Stephen comes back. He talks about how some girl comes that's at the house comes out and says they're all dead. And, you know, he goes and he sees all that. So that's just ugh, that's horrific. Mm-hmm. So back at Jonestown, all hell is about to break loose. So the defectors are loading up to leave around 3 p.m. Congressman Ryan originally was going to stay another day to see if there was any other members who wanted to leave. But he actually ended up loading up and leaving because when he was talking to Jim, like Jessica said earlier, he was saying like, oh, my God, you're doing such a great thing. Like everything's amazing here. You shouldn't be freaking out considering under 20 people out of over 900 want to leave. That's nothing. That's not even 10 percent. Jim, you're doing a great thing. I'm going to say all great things. He gets attacked by another member with a knife. So he's like, "Okay, fuck this. See ya. Y'all are fucking nuts. And. Jim knew that, or in his head, well, you know, I mean, those victims have every right to fucking talk. Right. But he knew that as soon as these people got to the U.S., they were all going to tell everything that happened. 
And I actually don't think that was what was going to happen. I don't think so either. I think they were still going to think he was too powerful, even with them back in the U.S. And they were afraid of him. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. They were scared something would still happen. Right. Because if someone can make a fucking private phone call, leave, and then three days later get murdered and dismembered. Well, also, you have to think about it like this. They still had people in, like, they were all leaving, for the most part, leaving people behind. Mm-hmm. And that's a powerful thing if you because like you look at Vernon, like he was leaving his son. Yeah. And that would have been a very easy thing for Jim to say, like, if you ever talk bad about us, we will kill your son. Mm -hmm. Because I think at that point in time, he would have been like, you have my word. Mom's I'm not saying shit, but my lip, I'm just going to go live my life. Yeah. But it's his guilty conscience because something Steven says is his dad, Jim, knew he was a shitty, terrible monster. He knew he was a bad person. He just didn't want other people to know it. Oh, definitely. It was definitely his own mind starting with that. But right before they're about to take off, another member comes up and says, I'm a defector too. Wait up, wait up. And this is Larry Layton. If you're familiar with this case, you know this is fucking bullshit. If not, we'll get to it in a minute. Mm -hmm. The group arrives to the airstrip around 4.45 p.m. They wait until about 5.10 for their aircrafts. And once they get onto one of them, this would be when Layton would draw his weapon and start opening fire on the plane while it's on the runway. He had been ordered by Jim, because like Jessica's example earlier, to do exactly what she said. He had been ordered to take out the pilot to take down the whole plane. Right. This would also be when the people's uh, temple members who had escorted the team had kind of came back around on their tractor and started to open fire on the airstrip as well. The members would end up taking the lives of Congressman Ryan, photographer Greg Robinson of the San Francisco Examiner, cameraman Bob Brown, NBC reporter Don Harris, and temple defector Patricia Parks. And everybody else there would be mildly to severely injured. His aide, Jackie, she would have really severe wounds. She had, I believe, five or six bullet holes. And Mm -hmm. she'd lay there for almost 24 hours until the rescue people came in. It's fucking crazy. And there's an article. It's I didn't really use it as a source. It was just me reading because I was just curious. Mm -hmm. Her retelling kind of check-in thing, I guess, like updated article thing with her in the whole situation. Um, It's a good read. So if you Google her with Jonestown, it'll come up. But now we're going to head back to Jonestown as the rest of this mass murder. Yes, I'm going to say it's a mass murder. It's not a mass suicide. Oh, definitely. Definitely a mass murder. Mm -hmm. So like Jessica said, these members have been through tests before of having to give their lives up, being, quote, poisoned and things like that. So at first, they thought this was another drill. That's honestly what they thought. Until shit started happening, they were just like, okay, whatever. But of course, this time it would not be. So Marceline made a broadcast on the PA system stating that everyone was all right and asking all the members to go back to their homes. So at this time, this is when the preparation began of the, quote, Kool-Aid. It's not Kool-Aid, though. So what it was, it was grape flavorade with Valium, chloral hydrate, cyanide, and fenugran, which everything was mixed together. So after about 30 minutes after her announcement, Jim Jones decided to call everybody to their main pavilion. Jim Jones then addressed his followers with the following. What's going to happen here in a matter of a few minutes is that 
One of those people on that plane is going to shoot the pilot. I know that. I didn't plan it, but I know it's going to happen. They're going to shoot that pilot, and down comes that plane into the jungle. And we had better not have any of our children left when it's over, because they'll parachute in here on us. I'm telling you just as plain as I know how to tell you, I've never lied to you. I never have lied to you. I know that's what's going to happen. That's what he intends to do. And he will do it. He'll do it. So after this, Jim starts to encourage his followers in what he calls his revolutionary suicide. There was pushback from Christine Miller, who was a member, of course. She argued that why couldn't they just still run away to Russia? Because that was like a huge fucking thing. Even in Marceline's will, it was give all their money to them. And they actually sent like two or so members on this weird, crazy, like, (laughs) take this money to the uh, Soviets kind of thing when this was all going down. It was fucking weird. But yeah. Anyway, uh, there was a Jim McElvin who was a former therapist and he had just arrived in Jonestown only a couple days earlier. He was helping Jones by arguing that basically, you know, like, let's make it a beautiful day, like, blah, 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 let's not do that. And there's this character that's in the documentary that's got, like, this visor on this whole time, and I'm assuming that's who that's supposed to be, because there's someone in there that's, like, obviously, like, a head henchman that's just like, nope, no, bitch, we're going to keep doing this, Mm -hmm. like, we're being a negative Nancy, even though we're about to all kill ourselves. Oh, yeah. It kind of goes back and forth a bit, and then after that, Christine does back down after the members who took part in the attack, returned, and confirmed the congressman was dead. They took up post and guarded the pavilion, but it wasn't guarding anybody on the outside. It was essentially keeping people in. So at this point, they started administering the poison. So terrible enough, Jim's decision was to start with the children. And basically, the poison would cause death in these children in about five minutes and even less for babies, but that's still not fast enough because if you know anything about any of those poisons, it's not a pleasant death at all. For the adults, it was estimated the time of death was about, took about 20 to 30 minutes. They had, of course, been lied to saying that it would be painless and they would just go to sleep and it would be fine and blah, blah, blah. And once the kids start taking the poison, panic pretty much sets in because everyone's realizing this is fucking real. Yeah. Our kids are dying. What the fuck are we going to do? Like, we're screwed now. And some like, you know, everyone's just like hysterical, of course. And some people were just like out of it and just took it to die because they're like, oh, my God, I just killed my fucking kid. Kill myself now. Well, I think that's why they did it. Mm-hmm. I think that's why they forced the children to go first. Because if you think about it, like a parent is not going to want to live with that, that they just did this to their kid. No. And that's why one of the things I think Vernon has had such a hard time in life is because he could have taken his kid with him. Right. And I mean, they even say Miss Loyal Marceline had to be restrained once she saw the kid suffering. She had to be restrained until all of the kids were done. Right. Because she was fighting it. And then she went right up and took the poison. Right. Because she knows exactly what had just happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know exactly, but from my understanding, she was pretty involved with the children. 
So I feel like that was just like a smack of reality to her, like what she was fucking doing, like no excuse for her whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that was her last reality check. So that's why she was just like, "Okay, I'm going to take this now. Fucking bye. I think also she probably believed him in the fact that she thought it was going to be painless, too, Mm -hmm. because like one of the things they put in there is a Valium, which should mellow you out. But I don't think they quite like they didn't quite understand I don't think that's going to cancel out what cyanide and all the other stuff does to your body. You would have had to have like a huge dose of Valium per person. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they were diluting it down with all these other drugs probably rendered it somewhat ineffective. Yeah, exactly. So they were pretty much just like useless. And then there's some more audio in this documentary of Jim just like, showing that he is committing a mass murder because he's just like demanding these people to pretty much like shut the fuck up and do it like do it faster drink more take it blah 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 like all of this horrific stuff and then there's another quote he says lay down your life with dignity don't lay down with tears and agony there's nothing to death it's like max that is just stepping over in another plane don't don't be this way stop this hysteric this is not the way for people who are socialist to communists to die. No way for us to die. We must die with some dignity. Soon we'll have no choice. Now we have some choice. Like, how fucking dare you? And then he also says, I tell you, I don't care how many screams you hear. I don't care how many anguish, anguish cries. Death is a million times preferable to 10 more days of this life. If you knew what was ahead of you, if you knew what was ahead of you, you'd be glad to be stepping over tonight. Ugh, ugh, I fucking hate this guy. He's dead, but I fucking hate him. Right. And I think the thing for me is, it's like, at this point, it's not even just, okay, I'm doing this because I'm loyal to him. Mm -mm. I'm doing this because there's fucking guys with guns off to the side. These people that I've known either for years or I commune with on a regular basis, they have guns. Right. And if I don't do if I don't do this, then I'm going to die. And I think there was this level of like, you need to complete the suicide part of it or quote unquote suicide of it because it made you completely loyal to the end. And if you really think about it, like your lifeline just left and I would have been petrified the second. Jim Jones said somebody killed the congressman. Well, and here's the thing, too. There's no confirmed number, obviously, but so many people were even just injected with this stuff or forced to Mm -hmm. drink it. Like so many people didn't even have the choice at all. They were just like shoved down their throats, shot up in their arm or wherever. Well, all of those children, definitely like. Oh, yeah, because they had the syringes. They were just shot. It was just shot down their throat. Like, at least some adults were walking up and drinking it of their own will. And I mean, some of them were because like the elderly, they were just sticking them in the arm with cyanide. It wasn't even like giving them a cocktail. Mm -mm. I think what people like cult leaders romanticize this whole like, especially Jim Jones, he romanticized this part where he was going to have all these people die for him. But they kind of fought back really hard. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know. Did uh, Jim Jones drink this Kool-Aid, so to speak? No, he did not. No, he's a little bitch. He ended up going to a separate room and being shot in the head. 
he couldn't even follow through with the same death sentence he gave to his own followers or do the deed himself. Yeah, no, I mean, he couldn't even kill himself. Like, he had to have someone else do it. And the thing I keep thinking about is, who's the last guy, like, the last one who hasn't drank anything? Is he one of the guy, like, one of the survivors? <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to laugh right there. That was a bad timing. But I just often think, like, oh, my God. It's a terrible situation, obviously. But it's, like, interesting how they survived. So we could talk about that in a sec. So just to kind of put it in perspective, 912 members died. 276 of them were children. That's crazy. Two of the survivors were two elderly people, which is just, you know, because you were just talking about it and you were joking about it. It's actually kind of interesting. So the first one's kind of sad. So she was an elderly woman. She was in her 70s. She yeah, she was like she died in 95 and she was 90 years old. She was frightened. So she went and hid under her bed. And she like passed out or went to sleep, whatever, woke up the next day. And that's when she saw everybody's bodies. But this other guy, one of the other guys that survived, he was hard of hearing and he slept through the whole thing. Oh, my God. He was elderly as well, but he slept through the whole thing. I mean, I know that there were people who just like ran off during the chaos. Right. They were like, here's my chance to leave. And they did. Yeah. Couple because there was a few that ran away. But so... It'd be the next day that all of the bodies were discovered. And then later that month, all of the 912 bodies, including Jim Jones, were transported over to Dover Air Force Base, which is in Dover, Delaware. So they could be processed, identified, and then laid to rest. Now, to kind of wrap things up with Larry Layton who fired the gun at several people on one of the planes earlier. He was found not guilty of attempted murder uh, in Guyana court, Mm. but that was due to the fact because he was brainwashed, quote, quote. With that said, he did not go free once he returned to the U.S. Once he reached American soil, he was arrested by the U.S. Marshals Service once he got into San Francisco. So he was convicted of conspiracy and aiding and abetting the murder of Congressman Ryan and attempted murder of Dwyer. He was paroled in 2002, and he is actually the only person ever to be held criminally responsible for the Jonestown massacre. Someone had to. Somebody had to. He is the only one. But that's really all I have. So it's a horrific, horrific event. We are going to be mindful on what's on social. You guys may have already seen them by now. When you're listening to this, depends on how that all works for you and your flow on your day. But if you are of curious mind on stuff, you can always check sources. On one of my sources on there, there's a website that actually has the uh, the last footage when they're on the airstrip. It doesn't show anything insane, but it's like footage just panning everybody when they're getting ready to board and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And then it does show when the People's Temple members start to shoot. And then, of course, he must have got, like, I'm assuming he got hit or something because then the camera falls and cuts out. But that alone is chilling. And because, you know, they took pictures from aircrafts and stuff above Jonestown. It's just, it's chilling seeing all of those bodies. I remember when I was a kid, they talked about this a lot. Mm-hmm. I think in church, it was talking about how I think we had a, a speaker and he was talking about like false prophets and how to recognize them. And it was it was really interesting. 
And I probably was like 14 maybe at the time, if not younger. Right. And I remember he used to reference Jonestown. And then I knew that's where the saying like, don't drink the Kool-Aid came from. Mm -hmm. Because that was a big part of obviously the death of all of those individuals. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how like one may... I always wonder how cults happen because sometimes I can be like hyper rational Mm -hmm. and not really understand how people can make those type of decisions. But studying him more, I completely see why people followed him. I mean, his largest demographic was African-Americans because he was giving them a place where they could be without persecution and love and acceptance. And that's kind of the signs of cults is when you have to get conditional love for your unconditional everything. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the big reasons Vernon left his son because his son was biracial. So he was like he would have he's like, in my brain, I thought he would have been safer here. Right. Because Jones did a very good job of scaring everyone that, you know, the United States was basically rounding up all the African-Americans in the country and putting them in concentration camps. And Vernon was white. And he thought, if I take my, you know, my biracial son back to the United States, they're just going to rip him from my arms. Because for most of the people after they left, their only source of news was Jones. Right. But then you have people like his sons who went to Georgetown all the time and kind of knew the truth. Mm-hmm. This is definitely, you could spend hours and hours and hours. I mean, we were delayed in recording tonight and I just was like, oh, I'll watch this one video, which turned into eight other videos. <laughs> yeah. And and there's tons of books. There's all kinds of stuff you can dive into on this. I know I, I, I think it might just be because of like where I landed with my generation. I never heard too much about it, like really, except that like that joke sometimes or mm-hmm. it may have been mentioned on The Simpsons once or twice. Like, ew, bad taste. I know. Sorry, guys. But like, you know what I mean? Like, I rarely for myself heard too much about it. So it's like mm-hmm. once we started researching it, I just I could not stop. And I don't think I still can stop, which I don't know if that's morbid or what the fuck is wrong with me. No, it's not. It's it's not morbid. Like, I think there's there's this, just so much to it. Right. I think there's this whole sense of like social awareness now where people used to sweep things under the rug like, oh, yeah, there was a mass murder in the town over. Like, let's not talk about it type situation. And yeah. it was just bad taste. But now it's like we want to know what makes people do this, because I think one, we want to recognize it in other people. I mean, there's that statistic like when you're in a crowd of a lot of people, the chances that you're standing next to someone who's a killer is highly probable. Mm -hmm. And the chances that you've already met someone who is either going to kill or has killed is highly probable. True. I think South Park did the best in talking about true crime that it is like an addiction and Thank God it's an addiction because, I mean, Tara and I wouldn't have a podcast. True. But, um, <laughs> Thanks, guys. But <laughs> yeah, I think educating people on how cults are seductive and they get you and signs because when you're being seduced by a cult, you don't realize it. Right. I mean, Boy Meets World taught me that years ago. <laughs> now, there's, literally, there's an episode where like Sean's being like recruited <laughs> by a cult. <laughs> And I remember they were like, you don't recognize it when it's happening to you, but other people around you do. And I think that's what happens a lot is that 
if we study these type of cases, we become hyper aware and we can protect those who are vulnerable because those people who joined were people who needed something. They needed love in their life. And I think Jim Jones needed love in his life. I mean, he grew up poor. And then at the end of his life, he was literally a king. Yeah. His son said it best. Like, he didn't want people to know he was the crazy monster he was. But also, I don't think he ever wanted to be alone again. And if the American government had come in and shut down Jonestown, he was going to be put in a tiny little cell and thrown away the key. And I don't think he could live with that. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, that is going to wrap us up here for Jonestown. We hope you enjoyed this episode as best as you can. I wish I had a better adjective. Um, Hope you learned something. Mm -hmm. If there are any other cults, since we've only covered one other one that you would like us to discuss, please let us know. We're more than happy to research them. They're one of those kind of obscure topics that do interest me, but they obviously take a little bit of extra time, so we kind of sprinkle them a bit. So let us know. But with that, we are going to go ahead and sign off. Again, thank you guys for listening. We love you so much, and we will talk to you on Thursday. Bye, guys. Bye. Murder in America is a true crime podcast that covers stories from all 50 states, including stories of mass shootings, serial killers, and lesser-known murders. Do you find yourself doing more research after listening to a true crime show? Well, Courtney and I used to do the same thing, and that's why we created Murder in America. Our podcast dives deep into each case. Our storytelling will make you feel like you're right there within the case with us, watching it all play out. And we do not shy away from the graphic details. If you're a fan of true crime, then listen to Murder in America on Spotify now.